0: you're listening to the awc city voice podcast where we explore the issues that impact washington cities i'm sarah the digital communications specialist here at AWC, and today, Gabby, AWC's Strategic Content Analyst, sat down with AWC's Government Relations Deputy Director to learn more about the current landscape of housing and to find out what's on Carl's radar for this session, including hopes and concerns around land use and growth management, the potential for dedicated revenue to support housing for the lowest income levels, and how members can stay informed and support housing policy efforts. Let's get into it. Today, I'm sitting down with Carl Schrader, AWC's Government Relations Deputy Director, to talk about housing and AWC's legislative priorities. Carl, welcome back to the podcast. And um, let's dive in. So housing had a big year last session and lots of changes, lots of new investments, but we also know there's a lot more that's needed. So can you fill us in on kind of the current landscape for housing?
1: Yeah, thanks uh, for having me, Gabby. Well, last year, uh, many folks coined the year of housing, and I think there's a Desire from a lot of folks to try out Year of Housing 2.0. So uh, <laughs> despite the uh, record level of policy changes and investments and uh, action around housing uh, in the 2023 session, many ideas are still coming forward this year, including some left over from last year, like the transit-oriented development bill that is Governor Inslee's request, which would require very significant up zones around light rail, commuter rail, and bus rapid transit. Uh, we still have concerns with that bill, as DWC in particular how broadly it applies around bus rapid transit areas. There are a number of cities who are uh, supportive and are getting more comfortable. So it's a kind of a mixed uh, set of perspectives from cities on that uh, proposal this year. One of the interesting things that was uh, new, uh, really one of the only things that was new as it ended last year was the effective date for the Puget Sound region is now 2029. So the bill won't actually have any effect on any cities other than Bellingham, Vancouver, and Spokane for at least five years. Uh, and so we're suggesting the legislature should spend some of that time doing a little data work evaluating what is actually available on the ground, what zone capacity exists, uh, comparing that against best practices and you know looking at uh, ways to um, make progress in the interim, uh, but do a little bit more evaluation on the policy front. Uh, so that's a big one uh, that is still moving uh, was heard in the House, uh, moved out of policy committee, will have a hearing in fiscal committee soon and has been heard at least in the Senate as well. Mm-hmm. And I would say the other big one that's left over from last year is the lot splitting bill, which has a very challenging drafting. And uh, we're still right in the middle of discussions about how to, uh, if if it's possible to make this work. But the idea is to create a more expeditious and cost-effective way to divi- divide land, particularly if if you're talking about like, you know, Monpa's uh, suburban home and and what they want to sell their front yard for somebody to build on right now you would have to go through a, a process to formally divide that land where you evaluate you know what are the critical areas is it buildable is there utility access can you get a card onto it um you know sort of the nuts and bolts and also uh, in many cases cities would require improvements to uh, what's called the front edge and how the, the property interfaces with the rest of the community so you know sidewalk improvements or things like that the proposal is to as much as possible from their perspective remove all of those levels of review and then allow land to be divided administratively without all of that process as a sort of buyer beware someone will have to do that eventually in their minds uh, but you know it could be deferred Uh, there's lots of uh, challenges with that you know it's mostly a consumer protection issue and and, you know we don't want to have a situation where folks are dividing land in a way that is not going to be buildable. And then they're uh, left with a useless asset, and they've spent a lot of money to get to that point. In Kitsap County, back in the days when there were the mosquito fleets, where they um, had little boats running people around uh, the Puget Sound. In in that area, a number of folks um, divided land effectively on paper, created all these parcels, and then sold them to people. Uh, and then the people who bought them found out they couldn't do anything with them because they weren't legally developable for a variety of other reasons. and so. We think there's a reason for a lot of these um, review uh, expectations and uh, we're open to talking about which of those are maybe not uh, important in this context or that should be uh, evaluated, but I'm just saying that there's no process is is not working for our cities at this point. So those are two bills that are left over from the year of the housing. Um, I'll talk about a third one in a minute, Um, but while we're still on policy bills, Mm -hmm. we've got three new ones I would say that are, uh, Weren't, weren't talked about last year. One of them to require cities to allow boarding homes or they're calling them co-living, but it's kind of a, a individually lockable sleeping uh, room, bedroom with shared kitchens or bathrooms and, and other kind of common elements. The pitch is that that will be cheaper to rent because it's a different product, which is uh, probably true uh, they um This is me being snarky a little bit, but since we're on the podcast, I'll do it. Part of the pitch, uh, as with many of these bills, is it's asserted that cities have made this housing form illegal over time and the legislature needs to step in and re-legalize this housing form. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, many of the folks who um, came in and testified in favor of this bill were architects who had built this type of housing in cities recently and were talking about how great they were. So obviously they weren't made illegal in those areas. Never actually see any evidence to the effect that cities have done this broad illegalization of these various housing forms. On the other hand, uh, we're not hearing a lot of objection to ensuring that this particular type is allowed. The issues are more, again, with the provisions of the bill um, that we're seeing in a lot of them that restrict um, parking ability, or uh, in this case, say that um, cost to do permitting or utility hookups or um, impact fees and things like that would only be charged to 25% of what they would normally be charged, which is you know, just an arbitrary number um, pulled out of thin air, frankly. Uh, so we're uh, working on that one. Also uh, from a same organization Sightline. line, uh, there's a proposal to regulate parking, but in a different way than just saying cities can't require it. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's new ground, uh, but it requires cities to allow kind of creative uh, parking types. So like tandem parking, where mm-hmm you would have one spot with two vehicles. The expectation would be the one in the front would have to have the one behind it move before it could pull out of its parking spot. So it's a way to conserve space. So that one it, you know, isn't generating a lot of opposition. Another provision in the bill says that cities would have to allow gravel parking lots. Well, that's actually a really bad idea. That's not good for stormwater and it's not good for safety on sidewalks. Um, because you got people like riding a rollerblade down the road and they hit a, hit a piece of gravel and go flying. Similar one that has public safety concerns is requiring cities to allow parking where the person would have to back out of the parking lot, which seems you know kind of normal in a residential sense. But if you think about requiring that everywhere, that would apply in an arterial or, you know, some cities have state highways going through them, and it, you know it's again one of these um, well-meaning concepts that in you know an application everywhere uh, starts to raise challenges. Uh, the final one I want to flag that is new this year is um, not really a housing issue but it's it's a land use issue and and close to housing so uh, the idea is to require cities to uh, allow uh, neighborhood stores certain smaller size um, kind of envisioning walkable community cafes and that kind of thing um, tells cities that they have to allow those they um, there's ideas about restrictions of parking and and authority to regulate how long the businesses are open and things like that. Um, you know, interestingly, you know everybody thinks that cities are just knee jerk against preemption. This has been a, a proposal as as I've gotten feedback on. There's certainly potential for unintended consequences, but almost everybody has said, "Gosh, I'd love that in my neighborhood. This is really cool." So, um, you know, we'll we'll keep working on that one. Hopefully, we can find a, a version of that that everyone can live with. Uh, so those are kind of the the, the bigger uh, policy bills around housing this year. So it's a, it's a bit of a mismatch, or mix match, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, uh, of uh, new ideas and old ideas uh, right. coming back. Of,
0: and still lots of innovation happening, Yeah. too. Um, you mentioned land use, and I know that land use and growth management are on a lot of people's minds right now. So can you talk a little more about that and just sort of what the hopes and concerns are there?
1: Yeah, so the real nut of it, I think, for us is, Uh, particularly the Puget Sound counties right now. So King Pierce, Snohomish and Kitsap are uh, very far along in their comprehensive plan updates. Mm -hmm. Um, And so new changes like something like the TOD bill or something that would change um, how much development a city would have to allow or authorize changes the, uh, the projections and the assumptions and the evaluations that are going on in these plans. And there is uh, requirements to do environmental review and um, you know, there's a process that you have to follow to make sure that it's all internally consistent and you're thinking about you know, your infrastructure needs based on what you're going to allow and what your traffic plans would be based on what you allow. And so it's basically impossible at this point without massively disrupting the process to make significant changes to the Growth Management Act and have those implemented uh, at the next comprehensive plan cycle, especially for the central sound. Uh, it's getting difficult for the next one, a little more time for the other um, folks. So our general position, though, is that we would like the state to take a pause on growth management-related policy changes to allow all of the work that they have already put in place to get uh, could it, to get done and then put into effect. Because it's not just that we need more time and it's too much to do at once, but all of the good work that um, the legislature has done and the policies that they've adopted won't go into effect. Until we get these plans done, and that we start to authorize what, in some cases they've told us to, in other cases we want to, and all the rest. Um, so we just think it's it's probably, um, you know, not a good policy decision for the state to continue to monkey with that at this point. Um, for the most part, we're here in sympathy for that. I think there's a lot of desire to, you know, figure out creative ways to right. make their own priorities, you know, still fit within that rubric, and that's why you see things like the TOD bill pushing the implementation date out. Um, but that's a big issue and, um, one that's coming up on many bills. And, uh, I think consistently across the city family, that concern is being raised.
0: Okay. Well, that, that's good. I'm glad to hear more about that. Um, and I also am wondering what you can tell us about state revenues and specifically the need for dedicated state revenues, um, for supporting how, housing at the lowest income levels.
1: Yeah. So, uh, one of the biggest disappointments in my mind from the year of housing 1.0 uh, was the lack of uh, dedicated and ongoing revenue for for affordable housing. And, you know, folks who are following this closely know cities are required uh, now based on projections uh, that the state has provided and that we're working with uh, that we're going to need over 1.1 million homes in the next 20 years to meet population demands and the underproduction that we already have. And um, the, the, if we don't get to that point it's going to continue to add pressure to the cost of housing and the availability of housing is it's a real serious challenge of that 1.1 million over 500,000 need to be for low income um individuals and families which is uh like 50% of the median income and below in those areas or in, at that income level you can, you don't have enough money to pay enough rent to recover the cost of um construction of a new building. And, and so it's very difficult for new market rate and uh, newer uh, existing market rate to be rented at, a, uh, at an income that people are rent level. That people with that income can afford. So yeah. the private market cannot be expected to fill that 500,000 units. That's that's the bottom line. So the public um, charitable and and etc. need to be able to s- step into that void. And that is quite a lot of uh, need out there. So 500,000 units is about 10 times the entire um, portfolio of affordable housing owned and operated by the state right now uh, through the housing trust fund. So they, that's been in place since like 1986. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about needing to 10 times that in 20 years. The only way you do that is with dedicated revenue. And so we're very excited that there's a real estate transfer tax proposal that's coming forward this year. Um, it's a variation of a proposal that, was, uh, that we were advocating for last year. Um, but the cool part about it is it's changing the real estate excise tax rates for moderately valued homes, actually lowering those, uh, the tax that would be on the sale of property at a a moderate income or a moderate value, but increasing, adding a new 1% transfer tax on property sales that are valued over $3 million. So the effect of that is that, um, everybody who's selling any property less than $3 million either pays the same tax that they would pay today or even less. Uh, and, the benefit of that is now we would have a dedicated revenue, in this case, it's uh, projected over time as, as the real estate market recovers to generate $200 million a year, which could be will be invested into direct uh, housing trust fund, into housing for people with developmental disabilities, to um, help people with medical challenges where housing is a real need for them, uh, basically all really good stuff that will help um, you know, meaningfully uh, pick away at that gap. We know we're going to need to do more, but this is a very substantial proposal. Um, so we're very excited and hopeful that the legislature will do that. The fact that it represents sort of a tax stability or a tax cut for the average person who's selling the average home. So, um, you know, things up to even $800,000. I can't remember. I think it's 725,000 is the, the new threshold would, um, you know, be in a better position or the same position than they are today. So, um, and you're generating all this valuable and necessary revenue. So uh, I feel fairly encouraged that we we could get there even in an election year, even with you know revenue being difficult. Votes at, at any time. Um, so uh, that's probably our top priority in terms of proactive things that we really need the legislature to do on the on the housing front. So um, that's been heard in the House and, and will be heard this later this week in the Senate. And um, looking forward to being there with bells on.
0: Yeah. And that's a great segue to asking, um, you know, what what's the best way for members to get involved if they want to support your work um, on the Hill or um, if they just want to know more?
1: So a uh, couple things. Uh, one, the, the number one thing you can do to be involved and effective is communicating with your legislators about the perspectives on, on any of these bills in any bill for that matter, but particularly how they will affect your individual city any unique features of that, why that's necessary to do or to not do. Um, Nothing is more effective than hearing from home because that's really where um, their interests are is um, how these decisions that they make will affect their own communities. Um, We can help as AWC amplify that. And the way you engage with us, uh, we do a weekly legislative bulletin, which can keep you up to date on where things are at. We do a really popular Friday, uh, 1230 um zoom call where um city officials can join in and and the awc lobbyists run down what's going on like up to the moment and answer questions that's really popular we have a new uh bill tracker portion of our bulletin which um our analyst team has spent a lot of time over the interim redesigning so that it will be even more useful for our members so um issues will be um uh kind of pulled together so you'll be able to see the history of a bill and um, where it is in the process and the awc positions and a variety of other things uh so check that out and then obviously um if if none of that uh, meets your needs the next best thing is to uh, reach out to any of the awc uh, government relations folks we all love talking to um, city members who are interested in the legislative process and and don't feel like you're um, challenging our time or anything those sorts of conversations really help us with the the ammunition in terms of stories and anecdotes and impacts uh, as we talk to legislators about these bills. So that's that's incredibly helpful.
0: Thanks, Carl. That's really good information. And also, all we've got time for today. (laughs) So thanks to our members and to you, Carl, for joining us on the podcast. And we'll see you next time. And that's it for the City Voice podcast. The City Voice podcast is a production of AWC, where our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. As always, thanks for listening.